0: Welcome to Season 8 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and through our partnership with Last Word on Sports Media Podcast. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Mr. Duct, Chicagoland's premier comprehensive air duct cleaning and ventilation for residential and commercial properties. Their motto is simple, they're upfront and honest. Find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. This week, we feature the best of season eight, part two. What I used to hear was the people who understood
1: what we were doing would say, I get in my car after work and all I wanna do is scream at the idiots
2: I work with every day. Because I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm with JD, but it's national, I gotta talk about so many different things and I'm just pacing the hallways, something I normally don't do.
3: Baseball was the vehicle that had gotten me to a point where I started to make a name for myself. So I wanted to use those two things to try to get back to the community to help in those areas.
4: But there's a lot of detractors in your life. Some people literally want to lay in the road and some people want to destroy your career. But it's just that's what it is.
5: I mean, I'm obviously very fortunate to work for the Chicago Bulls and win three championships um, as being part of that organization.
6: I was the only guy that ever played for him, was a captain for him, became a graduate assistant for him, and then worked for him.
0: And what a season it was, replete with such a wide range of intriguing guests. We had two broadcasters, two former major leaguers, a college football coach, and a baseball marketing executive. But we start with a couple of sports radio veterans. Dan Bernstein has been a staple at WSCR The Score in Chicago since 1995, and for 17 years was paired with the mercurial Terry Bores. It was an extremely successful match that Bernstein went into depth about. Part of the problem when
1: we first started was, you know, you remember how the the station was a lot of, there was a lot of internal politics, a lot of his guy, my guy, is this a North guy and we're trying to wield power and grudges and fiefdoms. And it made it all very uncomfortable. When it happened, there was a lot of ill will because these partnerships got blown up and reconstituted. And there was a lot of resentment because Terry thought it was you – know, a lot of people thought this was Mike North's doing, that North wanted to do it and that nobody wanted to cross North, nobody wanted to take him on, and that they just said that they're they're doing this because he wanted to. So it took a while for some of the resentment to simmer down. and And that's also when – you know, Terry – he, he always, you he always kind of had a lump in your stomach because every day he's like, I'm, I'm retiring. I got to get out of this business.
4: <laughs> I, no,
1: seriously. And it was, it was I know. hard for me. I, I was, I'm, you know, I'm, how old was I when we started? It was, I, I'm, you know, 20, it was 99 when we started. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm 30 years old. And you know, that I felt like a vet because I've been doing it for five years, but you're just, you know, your, your name is on a show. And this, you're looking at the next part of your life and thinking, well, now what's going to happen if he walks away? I'm going back to the sun times. Ah, I don't like it. I don't. I don't feel like it. And he, and he could be cranky and moody. But when the light went on, it never mattered. He could be bitching about everything. He could be in terrible pain. He could have a stomach virus. But the the moment that that red light went on, he was Terry and quick and funny and ready to go for for four hours. What? But his his grace. Terry's came, when Ron and Terry and I, when the the news just went, this is what we're doing, this is going to be the show, it was going to be Boars and Bernsey. And Gleason was adamant that it wouldn't be Bernstein, that it would be Bernsey. And I just didn't, I didn't like it. I thought it was infantilizing and reductive and it bothered me as a Jew. Because I, I wanted, it, it felt like you're hiding some ethnicity there. Your name, yeah, okay. Kind of old Hollywood and kind of that whole idea that, you know, Marv Albert can't use his name or any of these other guys that they have to feel they have to change their name. And I, lo- I really lobbied hard. And, and I said, I, I really don't want to be Bernsey. And Ron's like, well, it endears you to the audience. And I said, it's not my name. And Terry fought for me. Terry really fought for me. And that mattered. And Ron said, you know, it's really about Terry, this show. It's, it's more about Terry than it's about you. And Terry said, nope, it's a show. It, it's got to be a show. And it's got to be about whoever's whoever's hot for something. It's got to just let, just let us do a show. And we're not going to try to see who's got, uh, got, got mic time and who doesn't have mic time. And that, that made a huge difference. And once I had that confidence and that, so that sort of vote... There was always going to be other old score was always something that made you uncomfortable or unhappy, and all, the, and all the frequency changes and everything else that happened. But 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 through it all, he he could not have been more supportive. And then then when the objective metrics start to tell you things are going well, then people stay out of your way.
0: Who are you crapping? That was a staple of the show. And when, it, it was sucked. with Dan it was Dan McNeil.
1: And it and, and the, the the truth about who you crap is it was mostly awful.
0: It, it was, was every, it it had good moments, but you're correct. Most of the time people uh, were not very creative.
1: Everybody loved the idea of who you crap. Yeah. But it was especially later. And and this happened later because of when when it was great early because you could save things up. Something that happened on a Saturday that you read in the paper or heard wasn't already chewed through the entire news cycle. Like now everything's instant. Something's on Twitter. This person said that five minutes later, you don't even know what happened and everyone's onto the next thing. But then you could say, here's what happened this week. The, 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 the idea of delaying all of it over, the, over a week is preposterous now. And that's what happened to who you crap It. It was all old news. It was all old news. And all the best stuff was written. All the best stuff was emailed. It wasn't it wasn't somebody fumbling around on their phone. But in the in the heyday, when people would call and do various characters and Mm -hmm. it was when it was pre just pre Internet, I think that was the peak of who you're crapping.
0: The show was entertaining and it was also contentious. And by contentious, the two of you were not very patient with callers, particularly you used (laughs) to scream at them. And I mean, you used to scream at them well that was the bit and
1: that was it, a bit yeah that was the idea we we were we were the assholes <laughs> and people coming the timing when people said that i what i used to hear was the people who understood what we were doing would say i get in my car after work and all i want to do is scream at the idiots i work with every day and he said you get to do that he it how much fun is it you actually get? Like I get to, I got to break the social contract because of the distance that the phone line provided, and learning about the psychology of why that succeeded. It couldn't work now. You couldn't do it now. You can't just the world. The the world's changed, and and I wouldn't want to do it now because I'm 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 too old, and and I I, I don't want to. I just don't want to. It's not me. Anymore. Well,
0: well, are, is, is that another way of saying you've mellowed? Oh, totally. I mean, I think it's
1: natural. I think it's an absolutely fair question. Yeah. Yes, of course I have. Yes. And you, you, you know, you, you start thinking about legacy and mortality and all that. And, you, and when, when, the, when the question that most people get about you is, is Bernstein really like that? And half the time I'd say, tell him I am, don't ruin the bit. You know, let him, let him, <laughs> let, let me wear the black hat. Let him think I'm a villain
0: and the whole thing. Jonathan Hood, a.k.a. Jay Hood, is one of the funniest men on sports radio. Now paired with David Kaplan on mornings at ESPN 1000 in Chicago, Hood has fashioned a diverse career, including play-by-play and podcast. He was also paired with the late and revered Jeff Dickerson on one of ESPN's national shows. Hood discusses their relationship and a particular show he'll never forget. The whole overarching point
2: about this business is to have fun with it. You know, it's, yeah, it's great to be able to get paid. Yes, you're trying to figure out what's next, but while you're in it, you're supposed to have fun. And, and so with Jeff, I think that we had a lot of fun together. That whole story was while, I was, while working at ESPN 1000, an opportunity came up for me, George, to be able to do national radio. And a lot of people don't know, but I'll tell you that the whole point of me coming to ESPN 1000 in August of 2005 was to eventually go national. Um, I like the perspective of the national radio to be able to to talk about Chicago sports, but also talk about everything. And I really want to have that challenge in my career because it's something I hadn't done before. And so to come to find out that uh, JD needed a a partner for a new show that they're going to have on Saturday nights, um, I was chosen to be his partner. We had already done shows on ESPN 1000 evenings from time to time. And they thought, well, let Jonathan Hood work with JD because they've worked together on the, national, on the national scale. I get an opportunity to work with JD, and right before the show, I'm completely nervous. I've been already in the business for a long time, taking the microphone. You have some tension, a little bit of nervous energy, but not condors in your stomach. That's what I had because I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm with JD, but it's national. I gotta talk about so many different things, and I'm just pacing the hallways, something I normally don't do. And Eric Ostrowski, one of the producers is hanging around ESPN 1000 said, hey, you know, you okay? I said, yeah, it's fine. I'm just just trying to breathe because I'm going to be on nationally. He goes, you know what? You're going to be fine. I said, just like the shows you do with JD on ESPN 1000, you're going to be fine. And at that point I felt at ease. I was working with my friend. That's the difference. Not just some guy, I worked with my friend and we were able to do five solid years and we're the second longest uh second longest tenured show on espn radio for about four years straight uh after mike and mike because we were on consistently on saturdays and sundays it was so much fun um you know it's funny as we record this funny and odd at the same time um we are passing the anniversary of kobe bryant's death Mm -hmm. and i remember um that was on a sunday afternoon we were working a three to seven shift um, and we were going through our notes, like, okay, let's we'll talk about the Cowboys here and LeBron there, and we'll find out some stuff here. We'll talk about Major League Baseball. We'll have the late Pedro Gomez, who was great, a great guest. He was a weekly guest with us. He passed away not too long ago. We love Pedro, well, a great baseball reporter for ESPN. We used to have him on. Okay, and so it's about four minutes before we go on the air, so it's uh 2:56, and the producer. At Bristol, Connecticut says, Hey, hey guys, hang on a second. We're getting news. We're getting news. Something's going on with Kobe Bryant. to stand by. And we're thinking, Oh, you know, Kobe, what's going on with Kobe? I mean, he's retired. He's with his uh, daughter Gigi and he's enjoying. Three minutes left. Guys, we hear there's a plane, there's a helicopter. Kobe was in a plane. The plane went down. The helicopter went down. Stand by. We're getting more information. I'm thinking, wait, the, you know, hold on a second. Kobe Bryant is in a helicopter. What's going on? And JD and I are saying, okay, so what's the news? Guys, two minutes, uh, the plane went down. Uh, Kobe Bryant and his whole family were in the helicopter. It went down. There's casual, casualties. Stand by. Okay. So now we're panicking, like, okay, we're going online, see if there's any information. Guys, one minute, 60 seconds here. Uh, Kobe's copter went down. Uh, We believe that his family was in it, uh, maybe some of the Laker players. 30 seconds. And we're we're saying, okay, so what do we lead with? Is it it still the Cowboys? Is it still LeBron? Uh, Guys, 10 seconds. We just got word uh, Kobe died with his family in the helicopter. Five, four, three, two, go. And we're looking, you know, J.D. and I are looking at each other and you know, JD is solid as a rock. He gets the information, takes, takes a deep breath and says, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to ESPN radio with Jonathan Hood. I'm Jeff Dickerson on Dickerson and hood. We just found out word from ESPN that Kobe Bryant has passed away and I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I'm just, so he throws it to me and I don't know what I said, George, but it, it probably wasn't English. I don't know what I said. This is Coast to coast national radio on an afternoon in which we thought we we're going to talk about the Cowboys or some other nonsense, we come to find out that an icon has just died. And if you remember that time, George, the the story was very sketchy. Was it his family? Was it Laker players? What was going on? And of course, we found out what it was. But the idea that you have a minute to go, and the producer says, "No matter what, you got to go because Kobe's died." Go, but. The thing I always will always resonate with me is that um, JD was a rock and he was he was steady, uh, given that news. And I don't know what I said, but I just have to give my partner so much credit for that, because that was a daunting task to get on the microphone and start having memories of Kobe Bryant. And he just died within seconds of going on the air. All right,
6: Jim Beheim, the legendary coach of Syracuse uh, with us uh, on Dickerson and Hood. As we remember, Kobe Bryant, who was among Jonathan, uh, five killed today in a helicopter crash uh, outside of Los
1: Angeles.
2: Yeah, the fierce competitor, we're hearing stories about Kobe. And again, it's something that you and I can both watch. But when you're right there at courtside, when you have a one-on-one relationship with Kobe, it's, um, it's a different perspective. We did that show for four hours. Jim Beheim and Jalen Rose and so many other guests came on but that was quite a memorable show but I just I tell that story to just tell you how strong JD was uh strong to support his wife through her cancer bout and strong to and defiant to the end he said in hospice to me he said um he said these doctors don't know me George they said he says these doctors don't know me he goes if I could just get to I just can get to uh to Christmas, you know, I think I'll be okay. And he got to Christmas
0: and a few days later, he passed away. When's the last time you had your air ducts cleaned? Here's the best solution. Mr. Duct, a name Chicagoland has trusted for over 20 years. They work on your furnaces, air conditioners, and do repairs, maintenance, and installations. In other words, they're your all-around company for air quality choice and more. Mr. Duct provides on-site commercial ventilation cleaning estimates you'd be hard-pressed to find better. So give them a call at 888-4-MISTER-DUCT. That's 888-467-3828. And Mr. Duct is the right choice to clean your residential dryer vents. They do a full inspection to make sure your dryers are running properly. Mr. Duct works with schools, health facilities, and office buildings to make sure you're breathing clean air. Their testimonials are endless and with good reason. So don't think twice when you're ready to work on air ducts, dry vents, and so much more. Just think Mr. Duct. Duct, 888-4-MISTER-DUCT. That's 888-467-3828. And find them on the web at mr.ductcleaning.com Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 455 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it?
3: I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point.
0: Curtis Granderson was a major league star. He spent 16 seasons in the big leagues, clubbing 344 homers for seven teams, none of which were his hometown teams, the Cubs and the White Sox. But more importantly, Granderson has spent valuable time being involved in many off-field projects, including being the president of the Players' Alliance.
3: The Players' Alliance was started, unfortunately, on the heels of 2020 and George Floyd and what happened uh, in his untragic death. Players came together saying that we got to do more than just post something on social media. How do we collectively start to do things that we've been talking about for decades and even generations before we played this game with greats like Willie Horton, who we talked about earlier, Dave Winfield and Frank Robinson, all trying to see more and more change in this game to just make it a place where there's more opportunities to not only play it, to be involved in it, to work in it, to watch it, to grow it. And that's where the Players Alliance was started. Founding board member Edwin Jackson serves as one of our uh, board members, uh, vice chair CeCe Sabathia, and I serve as the board chair for the Players Alliance. And we've been doing a lot of different things across baseball, both domestically and internationally, just trying to continue to be in that space to help players continue to grow their platforms of different things they're doing, provide opportunities for the younger generation going, and then also being there as mentors and motivators for the next generation of players that are going to college or have just recently been drafted or are about to make their debuts into the major leagues. So they have a little bit of knowledge to allow themselves to stick and stick around for a very long period of time.
0: You also established the uh, Baseball and Educational Academy. And I know that you're well aware the number of um, African Americans in Major League Baseball has really, really dwindled decided, decidedly over the last gosh, I'd say 30 years. I know Kenny Williams has tried hard with the Aces program, but you're also involved at the grassroots level.
3: You know, it's interesting. You know, it's unfortunate that we saw the numbers that we did this opening day season. I think there were six major teams that opened without an African-American player on the team. And last year in the World Series, we had two teams that played each without an African-American player on the team. So Especially from where the game was to where it is now, you have to start looking at, okay, why is that happening? Because there are a lot of kids that are playing at a young level, but they drop off drastically between the ages of 12 and 13. I think it's almost in between the ages of six and 12, kids of all races, all ethnicities throughout the United States play at a clip of about 3 point, I want to say six million kids play in that age group as soon as we go to 13 from 13 to 18 that number drops by about 2 million and now we have to start figuring out why that is so are there other interests absolutely there are things now more popular than they used to be ever before but we also run into a space where the older you get the more the only opportunities you have to play is you have to pay And if you just want to play the game, even not at a high level, a lot of those opportunities have been taken away or are no longer there for you. Pricing of these situations are very difficult. It's to the point now where I have some family friends that have told me they're thinking about getting an RV for their children to play travel baseball because it makes more sense for them price-wise to do that than going to all these tournaments and paying for all these hotels and doing it week after week after week, plus the registration fees and all the equipment, and as my kid continues to get older or the regulations change, the bat that I had last year, I can't use it this year. There's all these different things that are going into it that start to price you out of the game, and especially kids of color. So through the Players' Alliance, through CBA, we just want to continue to provide opportunities for you to stay in the game if you want to play the game, and I think that's one of the things that we have to remind ourselves of. If you want to play the game, doesn't mean it has to be at the high level, you should still have an opportunity to play this game.
0: Tell me also about the Grandkids Foundation in your name.
3: The Grandkids Foundation we started in 2007 when I was playing in Detroit. At that time the high school graduation rate was only at 50% and baseball was the vehicle that had gotten me to a point where I started to make a name for myself so I wanted to use those two things to try to get back to the community to help in those areas. We then partnered with Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign in 2008 I think it was to help fight childhood obesity. We then added uh food insecure issues, doing things with the Greater Chicago Food Depository, the Northern Illinois Food Bank, No Kid Hungry, Food Bank in New York, a bunch of different ways just to continue to make sure that individuals have meals. Uh, you start to think about how grumpy and how frustrated your day is when you skip breakfast or you don't get lunch. There's a lot of people in this country that still just don't know where their next meal is coming from. So we try to provide those different areas there. And with the help of Mariano's, local grocery store chain here in the Chicagoland area in the month of November, which is our grand giving month at the counters. And when you're checking out, you get a chance to donate and all the proceeds. Again, go help the Greater Chicago Food Depository and the Northern Illinois Food Bank. And grandkids, is amazing to see that it's been going on for as long as it has been. Uh, we've been able to help out in a number of different ways and hopefully we'll continue to keep doing that. <music>
0: Doug Glanville is another former big leaguer who also fashioned an excellent career, spending nine seasons with four teams, most notably the Phillies and Cubs. But this very cerebral individual had other callings,
4: writer, media star, and educator. One of the things I talk about Good Fortune is that, you know, I first had this amazing career to do something love, like baseball. I loved it as a kid. I loved it growing up. My brother taught me everything. And then I had this wonderful career. And then one of the passions I had was writing, you know? So all of a sudden I have this next career where I'm able to write and this turns into this long extending media career. So that's how it was a collision of like how to express things in life and interpret things in life through a communication vessel in, in writing. And then it, it expanding from there into all these other forms of communication. Jackie Robinson colored outside the lines. He refused to stay inside the boundaries that limited how we saw humanity. We were equal, and only with scales weighed down by bias could we tilt the field in one direction or another. And I started to slowly realize, like, well, wait a minute, not only am I still around the thing I love, but what I love to do can be really central to raising a lot of deeper conversations about uh, things that have social consequence, right? The ways that society can be a reflection of sports and vice versa. So that's became another door that opened up and I started teaching a course and and that kind of opened things up. Uh, you know, I think one thing I learned a lot from baseball was that, you know, I, it, it's easy to thank the people that supported you all along and you should, of course, like yeah, you know, there's all right, this guy was in my corner and my my mom and and of course, but there's a lot of detractors in your life. Some people literally want to lay in the road and some people want to destroy your career. It's just, that's what it is. And I think I found that you have to be thankful for what they brought to your life as well, because I learned where I stood. It it gave me a certain strength about fighting back Uh, those challenges, even if it wasn't out of the kindness of their hearts was still important. And I think that I've been able to see the avenue by which sport and baseball in particular can influence People and change and, and inspire uh, ways that we could be better as teammates, so to speak.
0: Tell me a little bit about the course you teach, uh, which I believe is done through the University of Connecticut. It's far more than just about sports.
4: Correct. Well, it um, well, it started and there was a wave of layoffs at ESPN in 2017 or somewhere, and I was part of this wave. And it was, you know, it was one of those moments, like, well, what am I going to do now exactly, right? Uh, I still had some other stuff percolating, but it really was like eggs and all in one basket for the most part in a media sense. So I started writing down all these these concepts and ideas that I always wanted to explore. But was kind of hard to explore when when the culture was like, stick to sports. Don't talk about those things, that kind of thing. So I was like, all right, I don't know where I can make a job out of this, but let me just try. So I wrote stuff down and I pitched this course, which I didn't really know was a course at the time all over the place. I mean, all over the place. I went, I met with Manfred for 30 minutes. I went to the Players Association, the Alumni Association. I went to Harvard, Yale, Brown, wherever. I just pitched this course. And it was my alma mater, University of Pennsylvania. They said, I don't know, you know, this kind of looks like a class. So why don't you just take over my course? I had a professor who was gracious enough to let me take her class for a day. And she said, try it. So I did and it went really well. They hired me. I taught for that semester. It was kind of a far commute. I love my alma mater, but I was, you know, three hours away by train or four hours. So I moved it to Yale, where I had a friend teaching in the political science department. And then I moved it to UConn ultimately. But the theme was, it was a course about sports and society. Mm -hmm. And I started off as a, almost like a media communication course about how we interact and engage society through the media. And there was a little bit of public policy in there. The next one at Yale was a political science class, an African-American studies class, an American studies class, same theme, sport and society. That had a bunch of students that were all kinds of disciplines in it. Then I moved to UConn and I centralized it all. And it became the history of sports activism as you move to current, right? So it's history and current events about sports and social issues. And it's looked at and examined through the lens of how change is made through sports media which is of course you know by wheelhouse the law legal and through the political avenues legislative for example so that's what the course is and right now it's a it's a writing class where you have to take the student's paper and re-send it back to them with feedback and then they resubmit 15 of the pages have to be that way and it's a required class for usually juniors who are majors in sport management in the school of education at UConn, and I've been doing this. Is I like, I just finished my fifth year at UConn, and um, it does really well. It's it's popular. I, I've enjoyed it. I learned I learned so much from fellow students. Um, it's incredible how much I actually learn from them. You think you're the teacher, but really it's like the the jokes on you. Hmm. So I I love it, and it's really become a way to embody my passion around sport and and its value to society. In a way that I connect with the younger generation and, and stay current and and uh bring in so many different moments from, from what's happening in the world. Uh so that that's sort of um yeah, I love it and I keep trying to expand on it.
0: If you want to hear more guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, all you have to do is go to Last Word on Sports on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the many wonderful interviews we've done dating back to January of 2021. We resume with the best of Season 8, Part 2 on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. The name Brooks Boyer may not be familiar to people outside Chicago unless you happen to be a college basketball fan in the early nineties. He was captain of Notre Dame's team, but the longtime marketing director of the Chicago White Sox was also part of the Bulls organization and recalled a story that included the GOAT.
5: You will remember this vividly. Michael Jordan returns to the Chicago Bulls to a lot of fanfare in, in 1995. I was scheduled to play in a, a, a championship game for the uh, Chicago Park District basketball, whatever it was, whatever league that was. And my teammates and I decided to forfeit so we could watch Jordan return to play <laughs> against, the, uh, against the Indiana Pacers.
6: The last five minutes and 34 seconds since Michael Jordan made his return after that nine minute step in the first quarter with- Michael back on the floor. Pacers with a 15-3. And that is Jordan still looking for his first
4: field goal. And there it is Michael Jordan.
5: If you can take yourself back to 1996, uh, Jordan completes that mission of winning a championship after coming back from playing baseball. And everyone remembers or everyone has at least seen the photo of Michael Jordan laying on the, the, the ground in, in, in what appears to be the training room. It actually was the training room of, of the United Center. Some people may think it was just the locker room. But after winning, Jordan comes down and and, and into the locker room and has you know, a, a, you know, obviously a ton of emotion coming off the loss of his father, uh, bringing the Bulls back to, to, to where everyone expected them to be. And I handed him his bottle of champagne as he walked in, because I had executed the champagne deal for the bulls. If they were to win the championship of, of what champagne was going to go into the locker room. So I handed it to him. He set it into his locker and, and proceeded to walk into the training room where he had this very emotional moment that was, was, was captured on film. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I was one of only maybe five people that happened to be in the room uh to 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 see that. And and it was uh obviously very fortunate to work for the Chicago Bulls and win three championships um as being part of that organization. Uh but that's that's clearly something I'll never forget. Uh seeing the emotion of of the greatest player that's ever walked on the planet uh in winning a winning a championship. That that that's something that Will always uh, stay with me.
0: What was it like working with him, or did you ever work with him directly?
5: Oh yeah, yeah we we had to, um, you know, with, with with my role within the within the Bulls, uh, you know, there were a number of things that we had to do. He was he was always very gracious with his with his time. Um, he was he he got pulled in so many different directions, and you know he really understood uh, the importance he had to the game and, and, and respected the fans. And, 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 you know, you see nowadays, it's just a, it's a different world. Uh, you know, guys have load management days, guys don't play in all the exhibition games. Michael knew when we went out on the road that people were there to see him. And, you know, he was, he was obviously ultra competitive and and, and wanted to win at everything that he could, but he never, I just never saw him mail in a day even if it was an exhibition game uh, he knew fans were there and the, the place was packed to, to see him and and he just delivered day after day after day so you know I, I saw him be pulled in a, in a million different directions and and now that I've been in the industry you know for for so long um, I, I marvel at his understanding of his place and his importance, in you know in the NBA and in sports and in Chicago, and you know how the guy just never mailed it in a single day and 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 did everything uh, for for fans, did everything for the organization, and really was available whenever we needed him. And 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 I just give him so much kudos uh, for for being that way. I was new to the industry, so I didn't know any different. Um, and now looking back, you realize how special the guy was. How does one become a
0: successful college football coach? Probably being a football junkie. And such is the case with Brett Bielema, head coach at the University of Illinois. Bielema traced his obsession with the sport going back to his childhood. My older brother Bart was a really good high school
6: football player. Uh, and, and you know, I kind of idolized him growing up and, and watching him and his teammates and his classmates uh, have success and what football did for them. I followed him down the wrestling path as well. And then my sister was actually a really good track athlete. She ran track at Illinois State. So I was kind of around athletics. Uh, Really, the first athletic event I was really involved in was a swimming team, the Provostown Piranhas, uh, and uh, became really intrigued by competition. I think one of the things I remember early on in my life is I always wanted to go play with my older brothers and my older siblings. And no matter what the situation, I wanted to be involved. And I think that really kind of gave grassroots to the competitive level that I have today. And and, and I've really had throughout my entire playing and coaching career.
0: Prophetstown is much closer to Iowa than Illinois. So you were heavily recruited by the legendary Iowa coach, Hayden Fry. Yeah,
6: I wouldn't say recruited too heavily. I recruited him. Um, oh! <laughs> I, I, I uh, uh, came from a small town. Prophetstown was a, a really small uh, school, two-way high school that, um, you know, we, we had good athletics and a good program. I was a good student, but I actually ended up walking on at the University of Iowa. I always say Illinois never offered me, but nobody else did either. I ended up uh, being, uh, in my opinion, an under-recruited, underdeveloped player that found an opportunity at the University of Iowa and gravitated to that. Uh, Went there, walked on, earned a scholarship, became a multi-year starter, had a wonderful NFL career. I was with the Seahawks for seven days before they decided to cut (laughs) me. Um, And that really, that was the catalyst that drove me to Hayden Fry offered me an opportunity to start coaching for him, and that, that that's really where it all began.
0: Well, what did you learn from Coach Fry that sent you to the next level?
6: You know, uh, Coach was a player's coach. I remember, you know, as a defensive player in his on his roster, he really never coached us up that much, but he was a great motivator. I, would, I remember getting out of team meetings on Friday night and be ready to run through a brick wall for him. Um, he was a player's coach, highly motivated, uh, and really gave me a taste for what I wanted to become. And then uh, you know I was able to stay there and work for him uh, I was very few very fortunate to my knowledge I was the only guy that ever played for him was a captain for him became a graduate assistant for him and then worked for him um, he had a lot of former players that found their way through the system but there were breaks in that I was the only one that kind of went through the whole system and uh, I still carry a note in my my briefcase today that uh, it was a note he gave me when he retired and, and he basically said uh, 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 he always used to spell my name Brett with two T's. Well, it only has one, and his his uh, uh, expression was the reason he always spelled it with two T's is because he knew I always kicked, kicked a little bit of butt. Um, and huh. he put a little note in there that said, "Be prepared for the moment to be the head coach that you're going to be, uh, and don't be surprised when you get there." And that that was a really defining moment for me. I had just lost him as my head coach, my mentor. Didn't really even have a job, but Kirk Ferentz retained me and. I learned a lot of things through Kirk, but then I went and worked for Bill Snyder at Kansas State, who had also been a legacy of Coach Fry. And then I ultimately went to the University of Wisconsin with Barry Alvarez, who had also been a legacy under Coach Fry. He was his linebacker coach. So my four biggest mentors in the college profession all came out of that Hayden Fry tree. And it's fun now for me. I've had a number of guys that have gone on become head coaches out of the coaching tree that I've established. And it's kind of, you see a lot of those same similarities, and that's a lot of fun.
0: You mentioned Bill Belichick and going to work with him with the New England Patriots. You actually won a Super Bowl. And this, by the way, for people who don't know this, was before Tom Brady. Tell me a story, I don't know, what it was like to work with Belichick.
6: It was a football utopia. Um, I, I, I had never been in the NFL as a coach. Uh, like I had mentioned earlier, a seven-day playing career, so it wasn't real long. Uh, but as a coach, uh, to go to work every day, and you know, the, it was really... Football-driven. Um, well, I was involved early on, and and throughout the course of the year on evaluations of college players. So that was kind of a unique perspective as well. A lot of those players I either knew, competed against, recruited, or uh, knew something of them because of the college football experience. But I was able to go on the road to go into colleges uh, and first get a firsthand view of evaluating these players for our draft. But the more time I spent in New England, and the more I got involved with Coach Belichick and the and the staff. He gave me a lot of special assignments, a lot of unique opportunities to kind of learn the game uh, from the NFL point of view, which is really uh, quite a bit different than the college world, but also very similar in certain ways. Uh, We're around a lot of great players. As you mentioned, Tom uh, was able to coach defensive uh, uh, players at the highest level and and basically have great success. We won a Super Bowl my first year there, but also develop relationships that to this day reward us
0: here at the University of Illinois. My great thanks to Dan Bernstein, Jonathan Hood, Curtis Granderson, Doug Glanville, Brooks Boyer, and Brett Bielema for those wonderful stories. And my thanks, as always, to the people behind the scenes that helped make this wonderful podcast possible. T.J. Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics, and to our new partner, Last Word on Sports. And to our presenting sponsor, Mr. Duct. You can find them at mrductcleaning.com. Tune in next time when we begin Season 9 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Offman, and that's all she wrote.